Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with host Lane Nordland. Hello, friends. Welcome back to our Cattleman's Call podcast. Happy to have you joining us here today. And of course, we always thank Dan McCarty for that great intro. You may hear Dan's voice on the beef checkoffs. Beef, it's what's for dinner ads as well. And guess what? You get to hear him a little more today because he is actually our guest. We've had a few requests to know who is Dan McCarty from our listeners out there. We've had folks sending emails and they're saying, oh, we've heard that voice before, that that deep, deep voice. And, and folks are just wanting to know more about this Colorado rancher from Rifle, Colorado. Dan, how are you doing today? Great, Lane. Thanks to be here. Sorry my mom sent you all those emails wondering who that person was on the uh, ads, who well, that voice was. Well, you know my mom does that too. She's she's my number one uh, viewer on TV, my radio shows, and the podcast. So thank God for our moms out there. That's right. <laughs> well, of course, you call Rifle Colorado home, and you mentioned that's uh, the home of Shooter's Cafe. What is Shooter's Cafe? Uh, well, we're Rifle Colorado's home. Shooter's Cafe is a little uh, breakfast uh, cafe, kind of, you know, old... Old school, small town type cafe, and the reason it became famous was because all the waitresses have their sidearms on their side while they serve you your bacon and eggs and uh, coffee in the morning. And it's become quite the popular deal. They've had it on Fox News, and it's got quite the following there. So. Have they ever been robbed? Uh, I don't believe so. I, no. I want to think uh, so. Well, uh, Dan, happy to have you here uh, joining the Cattleman's Call podcast. And, and Dan, uh, maybe let's talk a little bit about yourself, uh, your background. Uh, just, a, just a little preview, of course. I, I see you at American Galvey Association events. Uh, you were just recently elected the, the president of the American Galvey Association. That uh, convention was held up in Billings, Montana, a few weeks back. But uh, let's talk about your operation, maybe where you grew up, and, and how uh, you got active in the Galvey breed. Sure. I'm one of... Uh a handful of native Coloradoans that are left in Colorado. I grew up uh, in some small towns here in Colorado. Uh, grew up in the seed stock business. Uh, my family got involved in Gelvies in the in the early 1980s. Um, and then uh, as a as a kid, I moved up to the mountains and uh, went uh, off to Colorado State University. Went to college uh, up there and uh, got out of there in uh, just a little under five years. You know, like some of us do and. And then I went back uh, to my hometown of Walden, Colorado, and uh, I went to work uh, for a very large uh, absentee landowner as a ranch manager there, and and did that for five years, and you know really got my feet wet on the commercial side of, of the business. We ran a lot of cow calf uh, pairs, and we also ran a lot of stalkers, and and my passion was always uh, kind of the purebred side of things. I just enjoy the genetic selection and the marketing and the customer service side of that, and so uh, my wife and I had the opportunity to kind of get back into it and start our own deal uh not long after college and and uh my wife uh, went to vet school at CSU and uh we moved to Rifle and she opened a practice there and uh we were lucky we were able to pick up some leases and and kind of grow our operation the last uh, about 20 years we've been we've been growing and are, are part of a great group of breeders there and have an annual bull sale and, and sell bulls and have some great uh, commercial customers uh, out in southern Utah in the mountains of Colorado um but getting back to the Gelvy breed, we my dad was uh, one of the first field men for the Gelvy Association way back in the 1980s, and uh, we got involved in the breed then. Uh, and I've just kind of been around him my whole life, and uh, you know it's kind of an honor to be elected the president of the Gelvy Association. This is actually the 50th anniversary uh, of the Gelvy Association, so it's definitely an honor for me, and uh, I, I'm excited to uh, to work with breeders next year in my role there. 
Now, you mentioned that you're one of the native Colorado uh, uh, residents here. You've been here your whole life. Let's talk maybe about how the influx uh, of people moving to the state, how uh, uh, urban sprawl has impacted this state's agriculture, maybe how it's impacted the, the politics of the state. How hard is it, though, for a, a person to, to get a start in agriculture um, in this state? And there's, you know, I look at Montana, for example, Bozeman, where I call home currently right now. That is a perfect case of the best farm ground almost in the Pacific Northwest when you look at uh, soil type. It's all being built on. So what, what are some of those struggles that you saw when you first started off with, with, with your herd and you and your wife and, and kind of what you're going through right now? Well, Colorado definitely has some challenges. Um, my, my family actually started uh, farming and ranching and raising livestock in Colorado and uh the 1870s so actually both sides of my dad family came out here in the 1870s and you know my my great-grandfather was one of the very first guys to get into cattle feeding he had a cattle feed lot right up here north of denver uh on what is now a, a subdivision uh and it just it, it's you know it's always changing but there are some opportunities out there we've we've got a lot of issues in colorado with water uh, water is our limiting factor. You know, most of the water that's produced here leaves the state rather quickly, and we have, uh, you know, all those compacts on the Colorado River. We've got the headwaters of the North Platts here in Colorado. We've got the headwaters of the South Platte. We've got the headwaters of the Arkansas. It creates a, a pretty uh, pretty interesting scenario when it comes to water demand and water use. Um, but there are some opportunities out there. You know, we, we definitely have an urban sprawl problem, especially uh, on the Denver side of the state. We're just kind of starting to see a lot more people move over to the western part of the state where I'm from. Um, but it, it, like I said, it does create some opportunities. Uh, we got a lot of guys out there, you know, we got a lot of absentee landowners. And not every one of those guys wants to just buy that place and lock it up. It actually has created some opportunities for us to go out there and, and create some creative lease arrangements with people. Uh, you know, our, our operation's kind of interesting. We own, uh, we own a bunch of cattle and we don't own any land. So we, uh, we figured out a long time ago that uh, we're never going to be able to afford that big ranch that we always dreamed of, especially here in Colorado. Uh, but we went out, and, and uh, it's just kind of sometimes you just got to go ask people, and the worst they can usually tell you is no. Uh, and they've definitely told us no a few times. But you can go out there and, and find these places and, and, and piece some of these pieces together on some pretty uh, unique lease arrangements. Um especially when you go out there and you can show them that you're doing something positive for their ground. You know, a lot of this ground in Colorado that we're talking about is owned by extremely rich people that don't live here. And at the end of the day, you know, they, they want a pretty place to come and look at the mountains and fish and hunt and do whatever they do. But at the same time, they have an asset base there. And, and if you can show them that you're creating value for their asset or at least maintaining value in some sort of way, um, that's, you know, that's a pretty easy way to get in with those people. And that's kind of what we've did over the years. And, and we have some pretty unique arrangements, uh, but we make it work that way. And it's, it's worked for us. And, and I, there's, like I said, the challenges are never ending, but there's definitely some opportunities out there. You just kind of have to learn how to work around them. Well, maybe let's expand on some of those challenges for our listeners out there. Obviously, every single one of these landowners ha- has a different goal with, with what they want to do with that land. And of course, most of the time it's just taking a weekend off and looking at the mountains and maybe recreating, maybe hunting. Um, and uh, they, they may have a, a different view of what production agriculture is. Um, so maybe on the challenge of, uh, of communicating 
uh, livestock grazing's role on these lands. What are some of those uh, tools, those resources that you've used to just sit down and have a conversation with people that you might not agree with on 99% of issues, but you know what? You're actually having that conversation to say, hey, I'm trying to make a living and I'm trying to improve your land as well. Yeah, I mean, we've definitely talked to some of those folks that, you know, they moved in and they just kind of wanted to shut the gate and and uh, they like to look out their window in the morning having their coffee when they're here on their vacation and they like to see the elk out there and and quite honestly the easiest tool for us to uh convince those people is the natural cycle of things and and if if, the, if to when you first visit, start visiting with them and they're really anti-grazing or they don't want cows on their place uh, you just kind of let it sit there for a couple of years because uh, one thing we know about uh, grass management and range management in the Colorado Rockies uh, when it comes to mule deer or elk is that those elk tend to follow our cattle around. And if you just let a place sit dormant for a couple of years, all the wildlife disappears off that. And pretty soon those guys call you back up and they say, "What what's going on here? What are we doing wrong? And you know, it's pretty easy to point to the neighbor's place and show them how they use, you know, rotational grazing or, or timed grazing. And and uh, you can actually, you know, draw those elk back on the place the right time of the year during hunting season if you do it right. And just kind of showing by example, I mean, you're never going to change that guy's, you know, his mind by just arguing with him about it. But just if they're paying attention and kind of watching and seeing the neighbor's place and what's going on, it's it's a pretty easy sell. And and at the end of the day, it, it actually benefits, you know, not only us as, as ranchers and grazers, but uh, the state's wildlife population uh, benefits from it as well if you do it right. What are some of those interactions you've had with some of those landowners that you lease, uh, lease uh, grazing from? Maybe maybe the reaction they had just saying, hey, this is a lot more positive. Uh, what, what are their testimonials, I guess? Maybe, maybe a, an example where they were kind of dragging their feet on it, and then they do see the benefit of, of grazing on our, our natural resources. Well, one of those is just like we were talking about before. I mean, uh, you, we had a, a guy that uh, was fairly wealthy and came out and bought a place, and he, was, uh, uh, he wasn't he was so excited about livestock, but he sure liked to go out and, and get a trophy bull or a trophy muley every now and then. And, and uh, you know, about two years of locking that place up and keeping the livestock, that feed got pretty rank, and, uh, you know, he quit quit great, quit uh, putting up the hay on the meadows and Next thing you know, there were there were none of those animals around, and you know he got skunked a couple of years out there hunting. And next thing you know, he wants to know why there's no elk there, and and uh, we showed him a couple examples of uh, some neighbor some neighboring places right up the right up the valley, right up the creek that you know where we use some some uh, managed grazing, and we actually can move the wildlife populations around with that. Uh, and at the end of the day, he said, "Well, let's give it a try." And uh, so we we brought in probably more cattle than we should have just to try and get it cleaned out a little bit and got it kind of back to where it was some some healthy rangelands and healthy hay fields and that and uh, creek bottoms and and next thing you know the wildlife were back and uh, you know the ultimate goal for us actually is you know these a lot of these guys this is a you know they're, they're very vacation home uh, but one thing we're able to use as a tool in Colorado is we have pretty good county assessors in Colorado and the ag tax break on a ranch that's valued at uh, you know, up around us in the Glenwood Aspen area, you know, if that ranch is valued at $25 million, they certainly don't want to lose their ag tax exemption on that ground. And so they can only go so many years without proving that you've done something uh, in ag production. And and we've actually used that as a tool as well. Uh, You know, and our eventual goal is that someday when these guys have these places locked up like that and they're at risk of losing 
the ag valuation on the taxes is that uh, maybe someday they'll pay us to bring animals in there and that's that's our ultimate goal and and that's what we're we're hoping for someday so so what's your relationship maybe with uh, some of the realtors, realtors or realty companies that are marketing these ranches as ranches? Um, maybe they're coming right out of production ag. Uh, what, what's that relationship you have with these people selling the land that maybe are a conduit to, to these new landowners? What kind of role do, I mean, realtors play in that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, haven't, I haven't got into it too much, but uh, in our area, I'm kind of lucky. I have a I have a group of friends that uh, are all kind of around my age, and, and we all kind of ranch together, and, and we trade help and that sort of thing. And and a lot of those guys do that sort of thing. You know, we all have a friend that's a realtor, and and uh, a lot of times what will happen to us in, in these high-value areas that I'm talking about, Vail, Aspen, Steamboat Springs, whatever it may be, and, you know, in other states it's Park City, Sun Valley, you name it. There's a, one of those in every state, it seems. But uh, a lot of these times it's a, a – you know, an ultra rich guy that's owned this place for a long time. He's maybe aging out and the kids aren't interested in it. Uh, and you've maybe been, had the place leased for five or six years and you have a good relationship with the owner. Uh, and in the best examples, those guys come to you and they say, Hey, you know, we're looking to, to sell this place or we'll move on to a different opportunity. And, and they actually are the conduit to the realtor in that situation. And, and, uh, you know, a lot of times uh, they'll go out and they'll find the guy that wants to buy it that maybe wants to keep working with you. And it, in those situations, it's really helped. And, and it all just depends on, uh, you know, quite honestly, what kind of business people those realtors are. And if they want to squeeze you out, they can certainly do that. But really, as we move forward with the, the way things are changing in the West and, and land values, uh, especially in states like Colorado, it's it's going to be more important to get you know, to know some of those ranch realtors, especially, and, uh, you know, let them know kind of what your goals are, what you want to do, what, what kind of manager you are. And, uh, you know, sometimes you're going to have to prove it to them what kind of manager you are, but you develop those relationships. I think it's going to actually create some opportunity here in the future for young people, because I don't know very many people my age and, and the next generation that's coming up that, you know, we're never going to be able to afford these places. It's just not possible. Well, and that you know, it's frustrating for, for all of us that, that want to make a living off the land. And you and I both have other jobs to to make sure that we can pay that cow note every year. Uh, so so it is frustrating when, when, when that reality is we can't go out and buy a five ten thousand dollar or acre parcel to to, to uh, add that grazing or the land that we need. So it, it is a frustrating prospect. But uh, a lot of people just throw the talent sometimes, and I think that's a good point that you brought up uh, having those relationships because we know that land just doesn't create itself. And it's getting developed and kind of sharing that uh, important role that, that ranchers play on that on that land is so important. Yeah, and I think the other thing that's important, too, is, you know, there's a lot of ranches out there that are, are family ranches, that, you know, and, and they're, they're still out there. And not every ranch has another generation coming up that's going to go take that ranch over when it's time for the for the uh, owners or, or the, the older couple that's on the ranch to retire or go do whatever they want to do for the rest of their life. And, and we've actually, um, you know, my group of friends that are my age that we all ranch together, we, we are, are active on our County Cattlemen's Association. We went out and developed some relationships with some of the older family ranches in the area. And that creates some opportunity too. You know, it, it's probably not a long-term solution for, for me or my friends operating, but 
you know, there's a lot of times that they might want to slow down and there's an opportunity for you to, you know, lease some pasture from them or, or get some hay from them or as they try and slow down and figure out what their plan is because, you know, some of these older couples on the family ranches, you know, they might they might kind of have a five or ten year phase out plan for what they want to go do for the rest of their lives. And, and we've, we've been able to come up with some opportunities there as well. Um, again, it's one of them deals that, uh, you just kind of got to go ask them sometimes. And it's, it can be a pretty awkward conversation, uh, especially if it's some sort of contentious family deal, because we know there's a few of those in agriculture, but you know, the worst they can do is tell you no, but, uh, I've had them tell me no, too, and then I've also had them tell me, you know, we're not interested in that, but maybe you go over here and talk to our cousin, or I know this other guy down the road that's looking to slow down, and, you know, all all these ranches that are out there, whether they're owned by rich absentee guys, or they're a family ranch, multi-generation family ranch, uh, somebody's going to have to operate them in the future. I mean, we're not just going to lock the gates and, and ride off into the sunset, and so... Uh, you know, you might not own it, but uh, if you can do something to to make that place better, uh, retain the value, like I was talking about earlier, or even increasing the value on that place, and you can make a couple bucks doing your thing that you're excited about doing, it's really a win-win for everybody, and I, I see a lot more of that in the future, especially in the Intermountain West where the land values are so high. Now, now you mentioned that uh, you operated or managed uh, uh, an absentee owner's ranch uh, for, for a, a while. How important is it for young people or, or people of any age that are going into these situations uh, to manage an operation of a most likely a very successful business person or, or whichever career they're in? How important is it to be business savvy, be open to tools, know how to present a business plan? How important is it to, you know, not just go out there and be a cow manager, but you're, you're being a business manager as well? Yeah, this is, I mean, this is a topic that I discuss a lot in my travels, especially with younger people. I mean, every everybody I talk to that's young, if I could go back to college, uh, I probably would not go back and get an ag degree. Because uh, if you grew up in an ag operation, a farm or a ranch, you, you definitely have some sort of foundation of knowledge. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of new technologies out there. You know, in the seed stock business, we're kind of on a frontier right now with genomics, and you got to understand that. you got to understand EPDs. There's a lot of science involved. But you can learn that stuff. And I, I think, really, the most important thing you can do to be successful in agriculture today is be a businessman. I mean, I tell young people all the time, if, if you can go out and learn and understand how money works and how money moves – you're going to be successful no matter what. If you want to go sell trinkets, if you want to go sell purebred cattle, if you want to run stalker cattle, if you understand business and understand money and how it moves and works, you're going to be successful. And I, it's, and I, not just going and working for a successful businessman or an absentee owner or something like that. I think that anybody that grows up in a family operation, you know how to do things the way your dad did, and your dad probably knows how to do things the way his dad did. And I just think it's important to go out and do uh, something different for a little while. I did that uh, when I was in college. Uh, I had worked on a ranch pretty much my whole life, and I decided I was going to go do something else. And so I went and fought wildland fire for a couple of years, and uh, I loved it. It was uh, I had a fun time doing it. But at the end of the day, I think it just makes you a, a more well-rounded person. It gave me a better understanding of the natural resources that we use to run our cattle. And uh, I really 
every time I talk to young people, I encourage them go do something for a couple of years away from the family and and just experience life and experience some new things and and it's you're never going to be worse for it. You're always going to be able to come back and add something to the operation. I think. Now I know some listeners are going to go, oh, he's going to talk about Montana again. <laughs> I am going to bring Montana State University into this because we've all heard about the King Ranch uh, ma- uh, manager, or King Ranch, what's the title of that? Uh, Institute for Ranch Management. Institute for Ranch Management. There we go. Great program. And uh, But a lot of folks have to have a lot of years of experience uh, in, in working on, on, on the land and working with folks before they move on to that level. And... Uh, there's a lot of ranchers and absentee landowners up in Montana that are, are like, we can't keep good ranch managers. Or they get headhunted by other uh, absentee landowners. So uh, at the Animal and Science Department, we put our heads together, and, and uh, they created the Dan Scott Ranch Management degree. And it's only, I believe it's only eight or ten students in their sophomore year. They have to be in ranching systems. That has to be their major. And then they get to apply there's, I think it's like their fall, their sophomore year is when they apply them. The spring it starts, but it is intense. It's business classes, it's economics, it, it's it's ranching, it, it's relationship building, and so that might have been an option for you back in the day too. But I, I'm just so glad we're seeing this because we want to keep this land in agriculture production, and that that was we were talking about that for the first half of this this conversation. And that's why I would encourage folks to look at that degree or, or, or ask your land-grant universities or your College of Agricultures, you know, what kind of options are there? Because, you know, some people just don't have the opportunity to go back to a ranch. Yeah, I mean, you talked about the King Ranch Institute. And I, I, I know more about that than the Montana State program. I'd put Ours in is a, brand new. So Okay, I'd put in a plug for that deal. I mean, uh, I went through – I didn't go through the actual master's program, but I was in the uh, the leadership program that the King Ranch put on together with NCBA and – and it was fantastic. You know, I'd been uh, uh, involved in ranching business for about 15 years out of college at that time. My degree in college was ranch management. Uh, and we had the opportunity to go down and uh, and sit in and, and participate in some of the lectureships they offer down there. And just the deep dive they take on the business side of things is very impressive to me. And uh, as we move on and we talk about managing these ranches in the future, it's definitely not getting simpler. I mean, everything we do is more complex. And now the problems we have to solve, whether it be on the natural resource side, whether it be on the genetic side, whether it be on the nutrition side, some of the decisions we make have long-term impacts that we're not really expecting when we make those decisions. And I think anytime you can go and learn a new way to think to where you're taking all those things into consideration uh, and you're making management decisions on these complex ranching operations, uh, I encourage anybody that has the opportunity to go participate in that and, and get more education and a further understanding of those sort of things. No, it, it's a great program, and I slaughtered the name, of course, there at the beginning of this. But, you know, like I said, our program at Montana State, it's, uh, they'll, it's, it's up and going. The first class will start here this, uh, this next fall, but we have an instructor in place. But when you get guys like David Letterman and you know, other well-known out-of-state landowners that own tens of thousands of acres – and they keep it in agriculture production, but they, they see the overturn. Um, I, I, I think it shows an investment from those out-of-state landowners um, into the future of agriculture and the state's economy and, and an, an investment in to keep people on the land. And so that, that's what I think is so neat about it. Yeah, that's, it's just so important. I mean, I've seen, it, I've seen it happen to where a rich guy comes in and buys a place, and, 
and he basically hires the first guy with a cowboy hat that drives in his driveway to be his new ranch manager. And when a guy, uh, you know, like you're talking about, comes out west and has always dreamed of owning the open spaces and a big ranch, and they have to write a check for twenty-five, fifty, a hundred million dollars for this place, it's a it's it's something they wanted to do, but that's a major financial commitment. And it's, I'm glad that those guys, a lot of those guys, are finally seeing the value that there is a difference between having a, you know quote-unquote ranch manager and a trained ranch manager that's a professional ranch manager because like I said everything we do is so complex and the last thing those guys want to do if if I owned a 75 million dollar ranch the last thing I want to do is have that thing run into the ground and when I decide to sell it in 10 years it's worth 50 million dollars because it's run down and they made bad business decisions and and so you know those sort of things and and I I think it's great that uh, a lot of these not, not just Montana State but there's several of these um, land grant colleges in the West are are seeing a return and the demand for those sort of things. University of Wyoming uh, has pumped a lot of money in, into their ag school here the last few years. I think it's fantastic that we're seeing that investment in all these ag schools because, uh, man, it, it's going to take more and more education for people to understand what's going on. Well, and there's an investment in those ag schools. It's an investment into the state. It's a land grant institution and. Uh, Montana State University's president, the little uh, uh, Quad Ed Cruzado, just a little tiny gal, but she is packed full of uh, vigor and and, uh, and, and vim and, and, and excitement about agriculture and that mission to educate the working classes, uh, uh, men and women, and that involves on the on that on the state le- on the statewide level, the county level, the extension. Maybe, what's your involvement maybe with extension here in Colorado and using those resources or NRCS or FSA to, to be successful um, in, in your ranching adventure? Venture, not adventure. It's kind of an adventure, yeah. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, so we're in Colorado, we're, our land-grant school is Colorado State University, and that's where I went. And, uh, you know, I, I've been involved with Colorado State as long as I can remember. I'm about third or fourth generation to go to that school, and and uh, I was in the uh, ag business and ag economics is is separate from animal science, and I was in the, the ag business school and and uh, had some great faculty there. Uh, Colorado State's kind of one of those schools that uh, has seen the pressure, just like we see in the rest of the state, and and uh, I I think the the ag school was struggling for a little while to find their identity and, and maintain the identity of the Cooperative Extension Service here in Colorado. Uh, don't get me wrong, there's some great uh, Cooperative Extension agents in the state of Colorado, um, and we're I think they've just kind of got it reorganized to where they're, they're really figuring out, man, this, this is still important to this state. Agriculture is still very important to this state. There's still people out there that depend on us. And uh, I think uh, we're headed in the right direction. But uh, when I compare it to some of the other states, I mean, you know, I've, I've been hanging out in Montana with you for a while. And I, I know a lot of the folks that have been up there and the people in the past that have been up there. And and uh, you guys have had some top-notch people. And it it, it, on, it doesn't only take a commitment from the, the land-grant school, but I think it also takes a commitment from the peop- the end user, the ranchers and the farmers out there in the state that rely on that service or use that service. You know, if they're not getting what they need from the extension service, it's your duty to get that message back to them and and provide them some guidance. And that's kind of what has happened here in Colorado. They've uh, sought a lot more input from the farming and ranching community and groups like Colorado Cattlemen's Association, Colorado Livestock Association. And I think they're listening, and, and I think it's very important that 
it's an it's an active role on both sides of the equation. You know, I asked you about NRCS and FSA, but I want to jump back to Colorado State. Uh, I was up there with the American Lamb Board uh, this past summer. They had a, a lamb summit there, and most of it was held in the new meat science lab. And for our listeners at home, they have a brand new building, and they literally have a rail that comes in from the actual uh, meat processing room, and they can bring in a carcass. And that that I don't that probably seats probably seventy people or hundred people. And students can see that. They can work on it. And I believe it's a USDA certified. Uh, it is. Yeah. Yeah, I believe it is. Uh, yeah, it's a full lecture hall uh, that comes right in. We have uh, now a full uh, processing plant there on campus. And I uh, bring live animals in one end. And then on the other end is the lecture hall. Uh, great, uh, great education partnership with private industry. Uh, JBS, uh, Five Rivers, uh, helped put all that together up there. We're extremely lucky to have that resource in Colorado now. You know, I mentioned this when I was speaking at the American Galvey 49th Convention there up in Billings, Montana, is that also they have the, the storefront in there with where our food comes from or where your food comes from with IMI Global. Yep. And I was just so amazed to see the traffic of students. And they weren't ag students. You could you, you can always tell the ag students from 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 other students for the most part. And and students were coming in there. They were buying uh, beef sticks. They were buying uh, steaks. They were buying hamburger, whether it was beef or it was lamb. I actually thought that was pretty dang neat to see a product served on campus and uh, just different types of students from all different backgrounds coming in and buying that product. Yeah, you know. When they proposed putting that up there, they got some blowback from the the vegan, vegetarian students and, and groups there on campus that they just didn't think it was right that they were going to have this processing facility there on campus. And, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's a CSU is a land-grant school. And uh, I was pretty proud of them for standing up and saying, you know, this is important to have here. Uh, the, the meat science side of things, CSU has always been well-known for that. Uh, and to, to make that commitment and, and stand up and say, you know, this is an ag school, we're going to continue to be an ag school, and to provide that opportunity for those kids that want to come in there and buy those products. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's like you said, it's, a deal, it's where food comes from with IMI. And so, you know, they can come in there and they can get those beef sticks and those sort of things, but they can also, uh, they're free to ask questions and it starts conversation with, with those folks. And, you know, not everybody at a land-grant university came from a farm, and not everybody there is to get an ag degree. And so I think it creates a great opportunity for us to get out and, and uh, you know, those students involved with the animal science department there can, can visit with some of those students that might have questions about, you know, I heard this, I heard that type deal. And I think it's kind of the, the front-line defense right there. We get those kids involved and, and a little more knowledgeable. Uh, after all they are at a land-grant university, they should be exposed to some of that. And I think it's just been a great opportunity for us. And, of course, it just goes back to understanding what consumer preferences are, what consumer questions are, and what the trends that consumers will be setting. I, I just think that's uh, pretty remarkable to, to have that as an asset to be an advocate for, for production agriculture on the livestock end. Uh, Dan, stay with us. We're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors, but we'll be back with the Cattleman's Call and the voice of Dan Bacardi right after this. Your National Cattlemen's Beef Association knows when it comes to the issues in Washington, there's simply no room for gray area. Trade, fake meat, the cost and impact of the Green New Deal. The decisions being made today affect the livelihood of your fellow farmers and ranchers. And what matters to cattlemen matters to us. 
It's as clear as black and white. Visit joinncba.org to learn more. Welcome back. And as promised, Dan McCarty, the, the voice of the intro and the tag on the Cattleman's Call podcast. He's also the voice of Beef It's What's for Dinner. You are in some high company, Dan. Well, there's Sam Elliott, Matthew McConaughey. I mean, man, what, what's it like knowing that uh, you are on the level of, uh, of the voices, of uh, previous voices uh, promoting beef? Uh, how did you get into that gig? Well, that's a good question, Lane. I, uh, so, as you mentioned before, uh, you and I each have our day jobs, and my day job is uh, I'm, uh, I work for National Cattlemen's Beef Association. I work with the state cattlemen's affiliates in the West and the members in the West. And I also work with our livestock market uh, members and order buyer members uh, that are spread throughout the country. And uh, quite an- honestly, they just kind of came up to me one day and they asked, they said, you've got a little voice and, uh, why don't you try to do some lines for us? So I got my phone out and I recorded some things for them and, uh, I thought, well, I'll never hear anything about this ever again. And, and, uh, pretty soon they called me up and so I went and, uh, spent the day in the studio and recorded some of those things. And, and, uh, you know, it's actually, uh, it's kind of an honor when you talk about those folks that, uh, people know their names and who they are. Uh, but I think it's kind of cool that, uh, I got to do that and, and, uh, hopefully you've heard some of those ads out there. We're, we're getting ready for Christmas right now. And, uh, one of my favorite ones is the old Yule log. And, and, uh, I've seen that actually quite a bit on the internet lately. And, and I thought it was funny when my friends and family started sharing that and they didn't even realize that was my voice on that. So. <laughs> So maybe let's talk about <laughs> you being involved in that, though, but just the different ways that the, the beef councils are, are marketing and, and promoting product on, on the national and state levels. Because you, you mentioned it's online. How has your involvement on that uh, kind of changed, uh, changed how you communicate with people about uh, uh, how beef promotion takes place nowadays? Yeah, I mean... Back in the good old days when, when you and I were little kids, we used to have ads on TV and, and uh, you know, the, we established that dollar ahead checkoff uh, back in the 80s and those dollars just don't go quite as far as they used to. I, I actually just saw the other day that a Super Bowl ad this year is going to be $6.5 million for a Super Bowl ad. So that's a big chunk of budget if you're talking about the, the beef checkoff and beef councils paying for it. But, you know, as you... You and I might not be the best at it, but we sure see a lot of people that uh, do a lot of stuff online these days. I mean, I I know friends and I, and I know people that they literally get the majority of their news off of Facebook and Twitter these days. And if we can figure out a way to reach those people and uh, the the people on the marketing side here that are a lot smarter at these things than you and I, but, you know, you can go in and... Uh, Say you had a question about a beef cut or something like that. If you Google that one time in your in your Google bar there, you know, you're going to start seeing some beef ads pop up here in the next few weeks. And I, I think it's a remarkable technology, and I think it's something that we are going to have to use in the future uh, with all sorts of different products in agriculture, not just getting the message out about beef. But uh, if, if people are going to have their heads buried in their computers and buried in their phones all day long, you got to figure out a way to reach them because traditional – traditional print media is uh that's not where people are getting their information these days that's not where people are seeing ads they're seeing the ads for things on on facebook on twitter on whatever they're reading online and if that if that's where you have to reach them we have to figure out how to reach them there and i think it's really important uh to also take note that 
you know, I have a lot of producers tell me when I'm in the country, they say, well, I haven't seen any of these ads. I said, well, that's probably a good thing because we have very limited resources and, you know, the demographic we're looking at for the people that are that are making decisions on whether or not they're going to buy beef and feed their family beef is we, we've got you already. You're, you're going to eat it. You're going to buy it. You're probably going to raise it yourself anyway. But, uh, you know, those folks that are going to the grocery store at the, at the last minute that are trying to decide what's what they're going to have for dinner, uh, we just need to make sure that we're positioned out there and in the right places that uh, they're going to make the decision that beef's what's for dinner. Going back to your uh, your genetics, your seed stock operation, how has that changed the online presence and your marketing? How has that changed how you market your bulls and your females? Uh, we're just following the same as everybody else. I mean, we use uh, we use social media quite a bit. Uh, to promote uh, our genetics and, and our bull sale and that sort of thing. Don't don't get me wrong. We still uh, our our group that uh, is involved with our bull sale. We do still do some ads on on local radio in in certain areas where we know we have a lot of guys that have been buying bulls there. We still do a little bit of print advertising. Uh, the problem with print advertising is you know it's really hard to track these days where they saw that and. Quite honestly, it's it's almost a shotgun approach there for a little while. I mean, you you utilize radio, you utilize some some mail some mail advertising, you use uh, some print advertising, uh, and then you put it online on social media. You also have a website. You're just shotgun blasting this stuff at them and hope that somebody sees it somewhere. Uh, but as we started embracing it uh, a few years ago now, I mean, we've got a uh, McCarty Cattle Company Facebook page and that sort of thing, but it's the next best thing to me to personal interaction. I mean, don't get me wrong, I still love going out and visiting bull customers and, and people that buy genetics from us. That's still the best way there is, is to go out and visit those people to understand their operations, but the social media aspect gives me a way to interact with those people uh, you know, on a different level, and you know whether they like something or they can send you a message that sort of thing it's it's created some opportunities for us to to not only market but uh you know just get to know people around the country that we probably wouldn't know because uh we're not a big operation we don't sell bulls all across the country i mean most guys in bull sales you kind of have an area where you're selling bulls to and and uh, I know those people, but it creates some opportunities outside that to get to know some of these people and, and not only potential customers, but other breeders and, and see what they have going on. And, you know, I don't I don't see us ever going backwards to where we're not going to be using some sort of online platform. So going back to, to your involvement in the leadership, being president of the American Galvey Association, the, the Galvey breed is a smaller breed out in the countryside. Uh, one of the big aspects of it is to promote uh, uh, crossbreeding and hybrid vigor. Well, what are your plans as a, as a fairly young producer that, that's taken the, the reins of a national uh, breed association? Well, what are some of your goals? Are, are you just president for one year or is it multi-year terms? Uh, it's it's a one year one term. One year. So so what what are your plans? What what are some of those objectives you'd like to to see happen, or maybe some long term planning to to be put into place over the next year? So one of the things that's uh, that's kind of unique about the Gelby breed is is we opened up our registry, uh, made the decision as association to open up our registry, and we created a uh, what a lot of guys were doing already. We were doing crossbreds basically. We were breeding purebred Gelby cattle to purebred Angus and purebred Red Angus cattle. And so we trademarked the name Balancer. And a Balancer is an animal that is a Gelby and either Angus or Red Angus cross. 
Uh, that animal needs to have 25 to 75 percent gelvy. But what we did is we we took an ant, we took uh, the traits that the gelvies are good at, uh, and we married those traits to the traits that the Angus and Red Angus are good at. And and a lot of guys have have moved towards uh, marketing balancer bulls, and we've got a little better. Uh, market reception with that. We we've sold a lot a lot of ge- Gelvy Balancer bulls the last few years, and uh, the unique thing is it, it allows guys if they don't want to get too much Angus in their herd, they can dial it down with the percentages. If they don't want to get too much Gelvy in the herd, they can dial it back with the Angus. And we've seen uh, a lot better reception the last few years uh, from cattle feeders and folks that retain their cattle and and keeping that carcass data and what those cattle are actually doing. Uh, I think it's really important that we continue to gather more of that carcass data because um, we we haven't traditionally been a great carcass breed. We're we're known as a maternal breed. We're known as a growth breed. Uh, we're going to continue to take a look at that because we need to know where we are if we're going to make improvement. Uh, if you're not measuring it, you're not going to be able to improve it. But I think at the end of the day, I, I really want to just continue to capitalize on the the strengths of the breed. Uh, and and just continue uh the legacy that uh, we've we've carried for 49 years and like i said it's pretty ex- exciting to be celebrating this 50th year of the association so you're also an auctioneer yes yes i am <laughs> uh did you go to western auction school or I, where'd you go to i went uh, i went back in the old days i went to the missouri auction school and then a few years ago uh, as i started uh, doing more and more i went up and western uh, offered uh, what they called advanced and intermediate class, and uh, I went up with about uh, six or eight other students and got to spend uh, four days with several world champions, uh, including your friend Ty Thompson and yep. Kyle Shobe oh, yeah. and uh, Jeff Stokes from yep. uh, Washington, who's uh, the only guy that's ever won all three crowns of, of championship auctioneering, and uh, really enjoyed my time with those guys and really, uh, really improved by spending time with yep. those guys what's your advice maybe for a producer out there that uh, you know maybe they've always kind of had a little auctioneer chant out there good way to maybe supplement income on the ranch uh, what what are some areas that uh, some advice and of course uh, go to auction school but uh, what are some tips you have for them well i mean anybody that's ever went and sat in the sale barn has drove home and, and tried to do it right i'm sure you have as well so uh you know it's it's not the easiest uh business in the world to crack into uh, but the one thing I figured out uh, several years ago was uh, every local Rotary Club or Ducks Unlimited, they all have banquets, and they all do some sort of fundraiser. And so I started doing quite a bit of those, and uh, quite honestly, those are really, really fun auctions to do. It's not uh, it's not selling the feeder cattle in the uh, sale barn, kind of a high-stress environment, and those guys are there to conduct business. It's something you can... Uh, you know, have a little fun with, crack a few jokes. You're there, they want to spend some money and have a couple drinks. And I, I started doing quite a bit of those several years ago, and uh, it's a good way to, to practice and, uh, you know, kind of figure out your how you're doing things. And I've had a blast doing those. Uh, I have started selling some uh, purebred cattle sales, and, and I, don't get me wrong, I, su- I really do enjoy those, and that's what my ultimate goal was when I was a kid and wanted to be an auctioneer was I always wanted to sell a, a bull sale or a female sale. But, uh Man, there's a lot of opportunities out there at these little local deals to go sell fundraisers for the hospital or whatever it is. And and the other thing is you're going to go to those type of deals and you're going to meet a lot of people that you wouldn't meet in your normal circles running around on the ranch and that sort of thing. You know, just chamber of commerce type stuff. And uh, 
you know, you can use that as another way to get back to our first conversation yep. to educate those people on what you do in the community, the value that agriculture, farming, and ranching adds to the community, and it's it's kind of fun because I'll I'll go show up to that hospital fundraiser wearing my cowboy hat and my boots and. They inevitably ask you what you do and where you're from, and it's a good opportunity to, to tell them what you do and how you're part of the community. And, and uh, I, you know, that's the backbone of Western United States is, is agriculture, farm, and ranch in these little communities. And I, I honestly, uh, I'm not saying anything bad about anybody over here, but I think the last couple generations haven't been as good at, at those sort of things. I mean, yeah, sure, we got guys that are on the school board and stuff, but especially here in the last 20 years and, and my generation, you know, people my age in their 40s, they just haven't been as engaged in those local community type things. And I, I think it's directly correlated to a lot of the negative stuff we see in the press about farming and ranching and the evil things we're doing. And it creates those opportunities to go spend time with those people, get to, let them get to know you, let them get to know what you do. And, uh, you know, the more people we can talk to as an industry, uh, the better off we're going to be long term. Now, uh, maybe jumping back uh, to, to your narration of uh, beef, it's what's for dinner. What, what's your end goal in the, being a part of that? What, what do you hope to get out of that? What, what do you hope uh, producers and consumers alike uh, can, can walk away knowing that that jingle, that, that slogan is still relevant since it first started and the Rodeo music that goes along with it? What, what's your overall goal with that? And what, what do you hope people on both sides, consumer and producer, walk away with that? I can't say that I actually have a goal. I mean, uh, I just kind of fell into the deal anyway. But it's it's a it's an extreme honor to be part of that uh, legacy. When you take a look back at the beef, it's what's for dinner brand. I mean, they they still do research, and it's one of the most recognizable uh, taglines that's out there. I mean, that's unbelievable that we have multi-billion-dollar corporations that advertise around the world that hire the most expensive advertising agencies to come up with stuff that you see on your television every night or you hear on the radio or you see in a magazine. And our little simple beef, it's what's for dinner, is one of the most recognizable brands that there is in the world. And uh, I'm just extremely uh, honored to be a part of the, the legacy of that and the little small part I did. So I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm, like I said, I'm pretty humbled and, and happy to be part of it. But uh, uh, anytime we can make that live on and, and continue the recognition of that brand and that tagline, I think is fantastic for us. I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask you to, to say it for us. Could, could you share that for our audience, for your mom at least? <laughs> yeah, you bet. Beef, it's what's for dinner. There we go. Well, Dan McCarty, thank you so much uh, for joining us here today, uh, discussing just a little bit about uh, your background, uh, the the opportunities you've had to, to continue to ranch and, and also, uh, can ha you know, you and your wife, uh, being a, she's a veterinarian and, and you working with, uh, cattle producers in the countryside here in the West every single day. And of course, uh, helping promote the, the best, uh, protein out there that of course being beef, that one ingredient that's in beef, beef, nothing else can substitute it. But, uh, Dan, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our audience before we wrap up here today? No, I just, uh, thanks for having me on today. Uh, you know, the other thing we didn't really talk about much was my day job at NCBA. And, and one of the, my greatest thrills in life has been able to travel around the West and uh, get to meet a lot of people. I have a lot of friends that are uh, in all the Western states that uh, I've met through this job. Uh, and it's an honor every day getting to go to work for those people. Uh, I've got to go see some of the most beautiful operations there are. I've got to meet 
uh, ranchers whose names you've always recognized, but you, you never got, you know, it's, it's an honor to go meet those type of people. And I just, uh, I'm really thankful that, uh, I get to do what I do every day, uh, because of the members at NCBA, uh, working for them is, uh, is a great honor and being a part of this industry that, uh, I've loved since I was a little kid. Well, Dan, thank you for all that you do. And, uh, thanks for continuing to promote beef and, uh, being a part of that uh, very small lineup of individuals that have been lucky enough to to have that deep bass voice saying beef it's what's for dinner but uh, again thank you so much Dan McCarty for joining us here today and uh, again you get to hear him every time you tune in to the Cattleman's Call podcast uh, as he introduces and closes the show and I would just like to thank everyone that's tuning in today and I would encourage you please please subscribe to the show whether that is on your Apple podcast app on Google Play or any of the apps that you listen to the podcast on I would encourage you to subscribe, and then that way you're getting every single show that we are producing every single month. We're trying to do two a month. There might be three a month. We don't know, but we're just trying to continue to just uh, have profiles of all the, the men and women that make the beef industry what it truly is. Again, thank you so much for joining us here today. I'm Lane Nordland. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with Lane Nordland. For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.